The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who I think is tired of going to weddings where he's feeling frustrated at the end, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, the following with Andy and Nico, the return of Warehouse 13, Person of Interest, and Supernatural and our sitcom section, including New Girl and Community. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, the season two premiere of Orphan Black, and the new FX series Fargo, and maybe even a few more things. Okay, just so you guys know, once upon a time, I think we're going to double up on it on our next episode, ATA 170, guys. Candy's having trouble processing the hook at Emma relationship. So after he works that out, maybe he goes to his therapist, can sees Dr. Hopper, we'll be able to cover it. But with that, we're going to go into News with Nico. FX renews the Americans for Season 3. It looks like the Jennings spy games are far from over, as FX announced the Season 3 renewal of The Americans on Wednesday. Quote, The Americans continues to be one of the best shows on television, Eric Schreier, president of original programming for FX Network, said in a statement to which I wholeheartedly agree. Six episodes remain in The Americans' current run, including the episode this week, with the Season 2 finale set up to air May 21st at 10-9 Central. Really great news for a great show. Yeah, I have uh, friends of mine that are recently getting into this now, too. That are wanting to get caught up. Yeah, it's a really great show. Oh, I just absolutely love it. As you can hear every week in my reviews of it, yeah. that just how much I'm loving it. Because this hit Netflix yet? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to. Okay, because I, I just wonder if that's the reason why a lot of people I know are getting caught up on it. I would assume that it is on Netflix, but I think if not Netflix, maybe Hulu Plus. Okay, and if you have to pay for Hulu Plus for a single month just to watch it, then it might be worth it. But let me check. I know there are quite a few FX shows. Okay, it looks like it's just the Hulu Plus is not there. It's just the current season. Okay. But five episodes of current season. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure. You might have to go to Netflix to check it out. You betcha! Fargo premiere delivers strong ratings. FX's quirky, bone-chilling crime series Fargo premiered this week to impressive for FX numbers with 2.65 million total viewers and 1.02 million among adults 18 to 49. Plus, from its three airings throughout the night, Fargo scored 4.15 million in total viewers with 1.79 million adults 18 to 49. Quote, we are incredibly proud of the towering creative achievement by Noah Hawley and everyone involved with Fargo, said John Langriff, CEO of FX Network and FX Productions. The performance by Billy Bob Thornton, Martin Freeman, Allison Tolman, 
Colin Hanks, and the entire stellar cast are nothing short of extraordinary. This is truly one of the best shows we've ever had on the network. We're thrilled with the initial viewership last night and really excited for audiences to see the rest of the miniseries. FX aired three additional encore runs of the premiere episode of Fargo, The Crocodile's Dilemma, this week on Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday nights, and I will have a review of the premiere in the Airways Rundown section a little bit later. Sneak peek, I loved it. Yes, good stuff and another home run for FX. Yeah, absolutely. They're doing really well with their original programming. This is definitely going to be right up there with everything else. Well, with the names they got, big deal. Heroes Reborn gets online prequel series. As you know, NBC announced the return of Heroes this past February in the form of a 13-episode miniseries featuring new characters called Heroes Reborn. Now, according to EntertainmentWeekly.com, we've learned that there will also be an online prequel series launched in conjunction with the miniseries. Heroes Reborn Digital Series, part of the network's new original online video initiative, will be promoted across the company's television networks and will air first on digital platforms including channel websites. Hulu and Video On Demand. Both Heroes Reborn and Heroes Reborn Digital Series are set to air sometime in 2015. And that would make sense because the digital stuff was very popular in the first series. Yeah, really. You're absolutely right. It's one of the first series that really used the web to continue the discussion and was active in that community. You, you forget how how early that was in everybody's broadband experience. You know, that was when broadband was really coming to everybody's house. Cable internet was becoming a must-have in every household. And Heroes, to its credit, was right on the cutting edge. And that was really good of them. Well, that first season was very cutting edge for television. Yep. In general. I think we got a lot of the things we have now from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Arrow because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, you know, the story went off the rails. And hopefully this reboard may bring it back to what it was intended to be. Yeah, I agree. But it's got some competition. Marvel's Agent Carter TV series may get a straight-to-series order. The last thing we heard on Marvel's possible Agent Carter TV series was that ABC had a script in hand from Captain America the Winter Soldier scribe Christopher Markison and Stephen McFeely. And now it seems the show may get a straight-to-series order. According to Deadline, there are talks for a series pickup of the Holly Atwell-led series, which may come along with a renewal for Marvel's Freshman Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Earlier reports indicated that the series would take place in 1946, midway through the Peggy Carter one-shot and before the complete formation of S.H.I.E.L.D. If all goes to plan for Marvel, Dominic Cooper could play Howard Stark in a recurring role. With Haley Atwell's contract extended at Marvel, the star would return to the role of Peggy Carter. So I guess the real question is, will this show work as a semi-period piece in the 1940s, or would it be better to retcon it to 2014? I say 1940s? but there is quite a lot of room for debate. For more on the series news, follow the link in the ACC feed. I'd like to see 1940s. Yeah. I think it would appeal to the fans of the old school Wonder Woman TV show, which was very popular. Kind of would make it look different than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, I think it's going to look a lot like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but 1940s technology. And right. So more like the Americans, but S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> you know? Kind of so could like, be fun. Yeah, I think it, the Americans... One of the things I love about it is it's cutting edge technology from when we were kids, you know, from yeah. 1980s. So they're talking about ARPANET, which is the the beginning of the Internet. And it's like blowing their mind. And it's something that's everyday use. Now, it's yeah. fun to do that kind of stuff, to look back at the beginning of S.H.I.E.L.D. while S.H.I.E.L.D. is running on an, an, another night or maybe the same night. That would be a lot of fun to see the, the parallels. Well, the other cool thing is, I don't know if you saw the one 
shop. Probably dealt with a lot of the women wanting a place in the work world after World War II. Very and important that whole stuff. Movement. And so yeah. it's, it's cool historic-wise as well, and I think that would be interesting to see on a TV series dealt with in handle. Yeah, absolutely. Titan Comics brings the 10th and 11th Doctors to new Doctor Who series. Cool. Are you a Matt Smith fan or a David Tennant devotee? Whichever Whovian side you might land on, Titan Comics will have you covered this July when they release two new Doctor Who comic series featuring all new adventures of both beloved Doctors. The first new ongoing series is Doctor Who the 10th Doctor featuring the adventures of the good Doctor as played by David Tennant. Series writer Nick Abedas and fan favorite Elena Casan- Casagrande from Angel and Doctor Doctor Who and Star Trek are on the 10th Doctor's creative team. Also on sale this summer is Titan Comics' second ongoing Doctor Who series, this time featuring the Matt Smith version of the character, Doctor Who, the 11th Doctor, from the creative team of writers Al Ewig from Loki, Agents of Asgard, Mighty Avengers, and Rob Williams from Miss Fury, The Royals, Masters of War, and artist Simon Fraser from Nikolai Dante and Grindhouse. For more details and synopsis on the first storylines for each series, follow the link the ACC feed. It's really interesting stuff. Are there solid comics, Doctor Who comics? Maybe? Yeah, I've only I've only read a couple of them as I just don't have time right. <laughs> currently. So yeah, the, the Doctor Who series is always really great. I've read some of the Eleventh and Pond stories. Okay, but I think there was one Martha Jones story I read as well a few years ago. It's a little different than the usual superhero comic book, right? But it's good stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mrs. Doubtfire sequel in the works. It's been 21 years since we last saw Robin Williams don a wig, fat suit, and prosthetics to play a lovable Scottish nanny, but now Fox 2000 is set on creating a sequel to the family comedy Mrs. Doubtfire. The sequel will reunite Robin Williams and director Chris Columbus with the script being penned by Elf writer David Brennaban. And while a sequel was in the works in 2001, back when Bonnie Hunt was still attached as writer, the project never took off and Williams and Columbus went through a creative dry spell with the project slowly dying off. It was only after Brennenbaum became involved earlier this year that the project gained a breath of new life. Though it's still too soon to know if the sequel will ultimately come together, Williams and Columbus are attached and apparently hopeful about the outcome. Surprisingly enough, the original title earned a Golden Globe for Best Actor and Movie in a Comedy-slash-Musical, as well as grossed over $219 million domestically, so maybe a sequel isn't such a bad idea from a business standpoint. Although, I'm not sure we really need any additional story from a truly story standpoint. I think they're believing that the name Robin Williams sells with this movie. Uh, Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. And with the success of the crazy ones, yes, <laughs> it's probably that Robin Williams is hot again right now, and this makes a lot of sense from a business standpoint. But I think the story was so good in the original, and the original movie was so good, it wrapped everything up in a nice bow at the end. Yeah. We don't need any additional story, like I said. But then again, I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand because I loved that movie. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like Robert Williams could do something else. Like, God, if this is what he thinks is good, then go ahead. Yeah. And speaking uh, of the crazy ones, because that show's safe, because the way that they did the season finale made me nervous that they were thinking cancellation. I don't know if it's safe. Okay. In my mind, it should be. It I was hilarious. So. It was a great show. Had a great freshman run. I don't know. It is ABC. ABC. Well, it's CBS, actually. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yes. It is CBS. I'm sorry. It's CBS. And CBS, That my point makes even more sense with it being CBS, requires much higher levels yeah. than the other ones. So if it was on NBC, it would be a definite 
infinite renewal. If it were on ABC, it'd be pretty solid standing. But CBS, it might get axed just because it didn't do well enough compared to the rest of the CBS. Much like Intelligence. Because I think it had a strong first, but I think it tapered off in the second. Okay. But I, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. I think it's funny. Yeah. So if that, he's got this movie to fall back on. Farscape movie is in the very early stages. Remember that Farscape movie rumor from earlier this year I mentioned? Well, now that rumor is inching closer to reality. Rockney O'Bannon, the creator and showrunner of the original Farscape series, confirmed at WonderCon that the film adaptation is in development, though it's still in a very early stages. In a panel I attended and will be discussing in a mini-episode sometime this week, O'Bannon stated, Yeah, yeah, it's the worst-kept secret. We're far from production, but yeah, the first step is just Justin Monjo working on a script for us. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Manjo was a writer and producer for the original TV series. I am really excited about this and hope it does become a reality, and I'll keep you guys all updated as more information becomes available and the film progresses even more closely to becoming a reality. Interesting. Yeah. Why You Should Watch Orphan Black Season 2 of BBC's America's Amazing Orphan Black premiered this Saturday, April 19th, or earlier if you were at WonderCon like I was, with promises of more unique, hair-raising sci-fi thrills. I'm sure you've heard fans buzzing about the show about clones, genetic modification, self-directed evolution, and a remarkable star-turning performance from a previously obscure Canadian actress, Tatiana Maslany. Well, every good thing you've heard about it is dead on. With only 10 season 1 episodes, there's no excuse not to catch up with this amazing series in time for the DNA to hit the fan in season 2. Hey, you can always check out the premiere online at iTunes or Amazon if you need a few more days or you missed the premiere on Saturday. BBC America also has a list of times and locations where you can catch the pilot. So get caught up and watch the pilot. And if you're looking for a little extra push for someone to sell you on this great series, then IGN has an article with 5 reasons you should check out Orphan Black in the and the article is in the ACC feed. If for no other reason than to see the amazing performance by Tatiana Maslini being essentially in every single scene and playing at current count seven of the characters on the series. Check out this great series. It's and, well worth your time. And she's been nominated for a couple of awards. Yes. For that performance. Rightfully so. It is amazing. She, in an episode, in the, in the season two premiere, she is playing three characters in a single scene, wow. all on screen at the same time. It is amazing. The acting is so good, you don't even notice the tricks. And it's yeah. just so, it's so good. I mean, she is amazing. This is, if this show does not make her a household name, then I don't know what's wrong with this business, because she is just a brilliant. Well, at BBC America, you can't go wrong with that stuff. No, they've had some really great original programming, yes. and this was one of the really first really good shows that came out last year, and there were some others that followed in its wake, but this is this is the best one I've seen. Well, it certainly got the buzz. Yeah, yep. and that's the news with Nico for this week. Well, let's talk about another show that just keeps everyone buzzing, and that's Game of Thrones, with another episode that had my jaw dropped, entitled The Lion and the Rose. Mm-hmm. 
Tyrion lends Jamie a hand. Joffrey and Marjorie host a breakfast. At Dragonstone, Stannis loses patience with Davos, and Ramsay finds a purpose for his pet. North of the Wall, Bran sees where he must go. I think that's hilarious in the summary. God starts out with Tyrion. Tyrion lends Jamie a hand. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that's kind of cruel, but okay. Because speaking of Tyrion and Jamie, uh, they had their interaction that we wanted last week. And it was kind of everything I wanted to be, plus the added bonus of Tyrion asking Bran to train Jamie how to fight one handed. That was good stuff. I want to see more of that as time goes on. Got their little training synthesis. Because these are, Bran and Jamie are kind of fun characters. And they both kind of care about Tyrion in the same way. So it's going to be interesting to see a modern connection come together between these guys. Or if there's a competition developing. I don't know, but either way, it's going to be interesting. Hey, Nico, did you like this concept of Tyrion's productors working together? Okay, can I hope for more from this? Well, this is a contrivance of the TV show. So I'm not sure if there will be more scenes with Jamie and Bronn because I just don't know. Or if this was a one-time deal, especially with what happened with Tyrion at the end of the episode. In the books, it is Sir Illyn Payne who spars with Jaime every day because his tongue was ripped out as a young knight, and thus he would never, or he could never tell tales of the weakness of Jaime's left-handed sword abilities. It is also not in King's Landing that most of these sparring matches take place. So if they stay true to the books, maybe Sir Illyn Payne takes over when Jaime leaves King's Landing for a mission in the near future to be his sparring partner. I just don't know. But is it that of uh, developing another character? No, Ilan Payne has been on the show before. Okay. He's the king's headman. So he was the one okay. who chopped Ned's head off and has killed many other characters in this. But he hasn't got his thug chopped out yet. No, he does. In, in the, in oh, the he first. Did? No, no, you don't see it. It's just, oh. it's it's mentioned. He never talks. He's, he's always in the throne room, but he can't talk because he has okay. no tongue. Well, maybe this was the safe time or something. I don't know. Well, everybody loves the Braun character in well in right. the books too but in in the TV show for sure and so it was probably a easy way to show him start and then maybe we will see them bring ill and pain in yeah. when Jamie leaves King's Landing for a mission in the near future as I said I can't talk about what it is or why it happens but it is gonna happen okay I could see why he would have to leave at some point, based on the end of this episode, if that's where it goes. No spoilers. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> that's my prediction, and I've not read the book, so that's what I'm going with. Okay, next up, we get a series of events where I felt several characters were in need of a home, beginning with Theon, whose pointless story finally went to a place where he was emotionally broken. He was so broken that he gave the Boltons the news that the two youngest Stark boys are still alive. But then that information stopped once it was revealed to Theon that Rob Stark was killed, making me believe that his story will eventually reach a point where he could somehow avenge Rob's death. Um, I think that may be his redemption. Um, but Nico, after an entire season of going nowhere, do you think Theon's story has reached a point where it now has relevance and has the story lined up with your reading of the books? Or are we still in no man's land in the Theon department? You know, Dan, when we started talking about how pointless the story element with Theon was, I had not finished book four or five and did not know where this was going. And in fact, it had barely been mentioned at all up to that point. Right. What we saw today was from those parts of Theon's story from book four and five, and I think you will agree is beginning to become important. The biggest problem for me was this seemed to be a complete story arc made up for the show, but once I finally got 
to the Reek story in the books, it made a lot more sense. So I'm not really frustrated with this story arc anymore. It was just not included in book three, but it was going on during the same timeline-wise, story-wise. So it was very smart for the creators of the show to go and start showing it early in, in season three before it actually was in the books. Okay. Now it makes a lot more sense to me and provided some very important information for Roos Bolton in this episode. With that new information, Roos knows his claim on the North is now much more tenuous, and if either of those boys show up, the North will rally behind them and depose Roos from his new Warden of the North position. Thus, I believe that we will soon see Roos attempt to hunt for Bran and Rickon, and I do think that Theon will become important again, and maybe that will be... I mean, he has become important, but I think he right. will become important, and that may be a redemption story. This is not spoilers, because where I am in the book, he has not gotten to that point, but he is starting to have maybe internal monologue that is not Reek, and it's more Theon. So that's interesting, because when you're reading the book, you get that internal monologue, and it, you can see it's a slight change. So that's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that in the, the TV show. Okay, we sort of got that when he heard about Rob. Yeah, you could see that that really affected him, but is it enough to get him right. over his fear of Ramsey and his loyalty to the Boltons? It won't now? be, but it, it makes up for the lack of not having the internal monologue that you talked about. Exactly. And yeah, and I also think from this, the storyline with the boys are going to pick up. They're going to be in more danger than they were out of season three with Brianna and Rickon. Because now they're going to have people hunting. Right. And Rickon is not a point of view character. So he's kind of ancillary in the books. So I, I hope that maybe in book six, he becomes a point of view character because, you know, he and Asha are off on their own right. from when they split last season with Bran. So I want to know what has happened to him. Did they find safe harbor? Did they find some place to go and be safe? So it's going to be interesting to see if they tackle some of that in the TV series now, if Roos goes after them. Okay. Good. Speaking of Bran, I'm always fascinated with talking about and analyzing what just about magical means, or I guess supernatural means. So it's interesting in his brief scene to hear about the dangers of being a ward and how they could lose themselves inside the animals they are possessing. I completely understood how this was a danger to Bran based on him losing the ability to walk. Aniko, I'm curious if you picked up on the same type of thing. Also, did you like how George R.R. R. Martin came up with this weakness for wards? Dan, I'm fascinated with the warg idea within the Game of Thrones story. In the it's prologue cool. of the fifth book, they tell the story of a warg who is mortally wounded and his thoughts of leaving his body for good and living as his wolf. He also contemplates taking over the body of a spearwife that has been taking care of him much like Bran did with Hodor last season, but was unable to because she did not return in time. So he ultimately has to make the choice to leave his body and become a wolf full time. The idea that a warg could spend too much time in the body of his animal and lose himself or his humanity is one of the reasons that people have been scared of wargs south of the wall for many generations. Wargs are much more accepted and prized above the wall. In fact, as we saw with the Thens last week, that each group of Mace's wildlings was sent out with a warg in each group as a guide and in charge of sort of recon. These wargs are very powerful, and so to answer your question, it was important for George R.R. R. Martin to impose this restriction or weakness on them, otherwise they may have been too powerful in this world. This was a good measure to keep them from getting sort of too powerful. So right. yeah, absolutely. If you have any kind of supernatural or powerful means, you've got to put a limit on them. Right, like if you remember in the inheritance cycle with Aragon and Brzinger and Elder right. and those books, magic wore you out physically. 
So right. your use of magic actually drained sort of, you, sort of your life force or your your stamina, and then eventually you had to rest, otherwise you would kill yourself. Right. And you could actually cast a spell that was too powerful for you, and you would kill yourself in in that in that realm exactly. or that that story. So it, it is important to put these limits on those powerful characters otherwise you know it becomes almost like superman where sometimes it gets boring because he's too powerful right. you know and so you know even even superman has kryptonite but you know <laughs> right, sometimes exactly. kryptonite's not enough but that's getting off of game of thrones so we don't yeah but, down that path. <laughs> right but uh you know with the word i i think brand being the word may help him out if they do run into wild legs while they're growth of the wall yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I think actually has been a detriment to the story so far is that they haven't focused on the other Starks and their abilities. Because we've seen Jon Snow is able to slip into Snow, uh, Snow's body every once in a while. Right. And it would be, or Wolf, or what? what's his wolf's name? Oh, I'm blanking on it, but it's Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah his, wolf. his Wolf. You know, and he actually does it up north of the wall to do some recon, and that's how they actually found him. But anyway, uh, that's, you know, kind of beside the point. I just wish that they had focused a little bit more on some of the other Stark boys and their abilities. Well, maybe that's coming too. Maybe, but I think they might not have just so that it was such a special thing for Bran and it really right. defined his character. That's a good point. And speaking of power, I guess, um, we're going to move on to Dragonstone, where I thought the Onion Knight also deserved the hunt for a lack of a role he had in this episode, as all we really got from the character was what we've already been seeing of him just being opposed to the way Melisandre's predictions were making status with Streetism, including pretty much, was it killing off his father-in-law? Um, <laughs> That's who that guy was? No, it was a... It was a relative. I think it was his brother-in-law. Okay, his brother-in-law. Yeah, it was the Queen's brother. Yeah, so, you know... Kind of family out for dinner, murder at the stake. You know, nice outing for the family. And kind of going back within the fourth wall, the character who probably deserved the hug more so than the Onion Knight was Stannis' wife, as she's kind of been so turned around backwards by Melisandre, she's willing to let the sorceress bet her husband can burn her family alive. But then I kind of took back my opinion when it was revealed she mistreats her own daughter for having, you know, deformities on her face. And on that note, I was glad to see Stannis' daughter hold her own against Melisandre. And I'm wondering if this makes the young girl the key when unlocking the sorceress's hold over her pop. What's your thoughts on my prediction, Nico? Were you disappointed we did get more in this episode? Dan, I love the Onion Knight, and so I'm always up for more time with him in this show. Now, something that may not have been emphasized enough in the show versus the book is that Stannis' wife is a true believer and is wholly committed to Melisandre and her god. Indeed, the queen has her own close followers that are called the queen's men that are all true believers. Also, Stannis' wife does not abuse or mistreat treat their daughter. Rather, she merely feels that she is becoming spoiled, and because she reads all the time, she is not so quick to believe in the Lord of Light and become a true believer like the rest of the family. Because of that, the Queen is concerned about their daughter and her insolence about the Lord of Light. I only mention the Queen's true believer status and the Queen's men because they become very important when Stannis makes his early moves in the war in the North. I can't say much more without spoiling some of the upcoming plot points, but that's the thing. She was just saying that the the girl needs discipline and that it might be a good idea to discipline her. And remember, this is medieval times sort of stuff. So discipline meant striking with a rod, but it wasn't because she's right. deformed. It is because of her insolence and her refusal to believe in the Lord of Light. So I don't know if the show did a good enough job of explaining that. And it was kind of just an offhanded 
right. comment. So uh, I just wanted to clear that up. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, but the Queen's men become very important when ultimately Stannis turns towards the north. And I think that's coming. Yeah, definitely. I just don't, I think with the big stuff that happened with the wedding, they didn't have time to drag it as, uh, as much in this episode to explain it all. Right. Remember, we have 10 episodes right. to cover. But I like it that the daughter's doing the right thing. God, I hope that comes into play in making everyone kind of get some common sense over it. Uh, but we'll see. I wouldn't hold my breath on that. <laughs> Probably something bad's going to happen. To be honest, I, I don't remember where the daughter's story goes. I think I think she's with her mother throughout most of the story, but I don't know. I don't remember her being instrumental to any sort of change like that. But I, 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 I once again, I'm only through book five, and there are seven coming. Six and seven are coming, so well, she who knows up, where things will go. If she ends up being a flower girl at the wedding, that's not going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't foresee that just because Stannis is already married. <laughs> Unless the queen dies and he tries to marry Melisandre, then who knows what's going to happen, right? Wedding could be guillotined for all I care. <laughs> Come this show. Yeah. And again, with that being said, I think the biggest hug of this episode needed to go to Tyrion, as he was continuing to be drugged through the rigor by the rest of his extremely messed up family, because he had to send the woman he loved away to save her from the hangman's noose. And to top that off, Joffrey made a spectacle out of ridiculing Tyrion at his own wedding, and that made him an angry elf. God, Nico, I mean, was the anguish that Tyrion went through here in this episode at the hands of his family something that really got under your skin based on your enjoyment of the character to the point that you wanted to poison somebody? You know, maybe it was because I knew what was coming, but besides the awkwardness of the scene and the treatment of Tyrion just being tough to watch in general, I was not entirely affected by it. That has to be because I knew Joffrey was going to get his before the wedding reception was done, but I mean... I just really was excited to see Joffrey die and see how they handled it. By the way, I thought it was great. I thought they did an excellent job with actual visual effects of him dying. That was really good. Okay, you did a great job of making me not think he's going to die. <laughs> yeah. Because you said, wait to hold- see what happens. He's going to redeem himself. Yeah, I've been holding on to that for about a year and a half now. I- I've known that that was coming for a year and a half now. And... Uh, like every time somebody would be like, ah, oh, I hate Joffrey. I'm like, just wait, you, you'll see. It gets better, <laughs> and it gets better because he dies. Yes, <laughs> I hate that guy. Yeah, I think you know. I think part of the reason that we hated him was because he was played so well, so yes. well. You know, you absolutely hated him because he just absolutely was so well done. With that for that for actor, he's going to be forever cast as a death. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a little more to say about Jack Gleason in a little bit later when we get to one of those points. But yeah, it, it was good stuff. Got on the flip side of that story, this episode seemed to mark the beginning of Cersei's evil being on the rise. Because her reaction to meeting Brienne and Marjorie deciding that all the leftovers from the reception should go to the floor all indicated that she's ticked off. She can't be queen anymore. Also, Cersei seems to be just as messed up as Joffrey, since she was the only other person who was laughing with Joffrey's ridiculing that Game of Thrones parody went a little too far. Nico, is Cersei someone everyone should look out for in the future, and possibly the true villain of the story? Now that Cersei, she's lost her son. Yes, she is definitely evil, but I don't think this is something new we are seeing here. She's no, been evil been from emphasized. the very be- yeah. She's but but she's been evil from the very beginning right. when she ordered Jamie to kill Bran. And an advantage to those who read the books is that we get to read about flashbacks to the childhoods of many of these characters. Cersei is often a point of view character in the books, and thus we have read about. About her being a vicious and manipulative person since almost the day her mother died when Tyrion was born. 
Tywin is such an ass, he thought that that was a quality to reward in her when she was growing up, and thus made her into the monster she is now. But that manipulative and vicious nature was there all the time. Anyway, Cersei's story will get much darker in oh, the yeah. coming weeks as she attempts to blame the death of Joffrey on Tyrion and put him to death. So, yeah, she is definitely evil, but it's not a new evil. So she has, basically, she blames two deaths for people she cares about on Tyrion now. Yeah, she's hated Tyrion from the day he was born and her mother died. I hope our little friend gets out of this one, gets back at her. I do. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting and really good storytelling on where everything goes and how everything goes down. It's right. it's going to be fun right. this season to watch. I'm scared they're going to pull a Ned Stark with Tyrion. I'm, I'm just so scared. I hope not. You should be scared. I mean, why wouldn't they kill everyone's favorite character? They've Nobody's safe on this show. No, no one is safe. I mean, even when you're, where you're at in the books, I mean, you may know some more things, but I still bet you have that feeling. Oh, yeah, definitely. That no one's safe. Again, as I expressed last week, wedding is a word that makes me nervous while watching this show. And this episode did not disappoint on that at all. Guys, really, this whole thing with Tyrion and, and Joffrey, you know, the real killing each other, and then Joffrey ended up being poisoned to death was, I mean, just, just nuts. God, I was so happy. I was cheering when, you know, Joffrey was dying. It's like, finally, that little craphead's getting what's coming to him. And then, this is what I'm about to say, Big Dog the Witch is dead. Tyrion accused him of his murder. And I'm like, no, crap. <laughs> he gets what's coming to him, and then Tyrion comes to jail. Uh, Nico, were you impressed at how the people behind the show handled such a probably important scene for critical Story. Yeah, Dan, this episode was written by George himself and was very faithful to the books with regard to how the wedding scene happened. The way they had Jack Gleason's face change color and bleed from the nose as Joffrey died was so well done that I'd say it was even better than the books because it showed it even better than I felt George was able to describe it in the books. So this was definitely one of the scenes where it was as good or better than the books. So well done this week. This was just so, so perfect. And I think part of that is because George got the chance to be the lead guy on this episode. Well, you know, everyone was talking about that red wedding. Mm -hmm. Now they can't top that. Nothing can be that shocking. And I think this went right up there with that. Yeah, it's definitely on the same level. I think the red wedding, maybe, maybe in the books it was, no, I, I'd say even in the TV show, it, it was still the most shocking right. thing I've seen so far. But this was, I mean, right up there. I mean, it keeps the show at that same level of intensity. Yeah, it definitely, for most people, they were not expecting it. They absolutely were not expecting it, and it just completely shocked them. But I still think it was less of a shock as, than The Red Wedding, but still just as good in storytelling. And I think the visuals of King Joffrey dying in Cersei's arm, that, that was just so well done. So well done. Yeah, I mean, it just good stuff. Um, and, and really, it just normally they have a big event like a Red Wedding kind of TV show, and it just drops off. Of that. It could never reach that level of intensity, and I think this kept it going. So good job to them on that. Yeah. Again, my guess right now what's going on, and I could be entirely wrong because I have a tendency to do that with this show, but I'm thinking the Prince of Dorne is behind it because a part of trying to get his revenge got Tywin Lannister for what happened with his sister and all that. I mean, that makes the most sense to me. And I'm thinking that either Bronn is going to try to help get Tyrion out of jail or a combination of Jamie and Bronn. Somebody's going to pull some strings or something to get Tyrion out of this mess. Or maybe Tyrion just has to leave the city. I don't know. God, really, Nico, is this just something bad for Tyrion you were warning me about? Or does it just keep getting worse? Dan, this is just the beginning of that something worse, greater trials that he'd have to overcome in his story. Obviously, the next thing he will have to battle is being imprisoned and accused of killing the king. 
Cersei will do everything in her power to make sure Tyrion is put to death for the killing of Joffrey, whether he is guilty or not. How Oberon fits into this story will surprise you and make for some great television and storytelling. I can't tell you any details about how Tyrion attempts to clear his name, but I do find it interesting that you did not even suspect that it might be Sansa or someone acting on Sansa's behalf that killed Joffrey. I, of course, am not suggesting that it is because that would be super spoilerish if I did, but I'm surprised that it wasn't your first thought, especially with Sir Dantos secreting her away at the end of the episode. I'm just saying, maybe she should not be discounted as being involved somehow so easily, but then again, maybe not. Of course, somebody did it in the name of her. Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody thought that it was time to get her out of King's Landing, and why not kill the king at the same time? Right. (laughs) So that brings a lot of people into question. That's the way to do it. I mean, some unknown who's working on Sansa's behalf. We know Brienne is committed to Sansa and Arya. We know that some other people are not huge fans of Joffrey, and now that Marjorie is married to him, you know, would have been better if maybe they consummated the marriage so that it was official but you know she is still queen because they went through the marriage but it's it's a good it's, it's a good kind old of you know yeah so there's a lot of people who could be involved here and everybody just assumes Tyrion because Tyrion was holding the cup so it's game of thrones clue yeah a little bit okay there you go and with that, we're just going to wrap up the section is to say, Nico, was there anything from this episode that I missed covering or were worth mentioning in regards to the books? I don't think so because George wrote this episode. Yeah, not so much this week because the story was written by George R.R. R. Martin himself and most of it was fairly faithful to the story. About the only thing that we didn't really mention was Bran making a connection with the Three-Eyed Crow and being told for him to come seek him in the North. This is where Bran's story is going and I think it will finally kick his story into high gear when he starts heading towards the tree in the north. Other than that, I think we covered everything of interest this week. I hope that we will spend more time with Arya, the Wall, and Stannis and the Onion Knight next week, since we didn't really get much from any of those arcs this week. I mean, we got a little bit, but really the focus was on the wedding and the killing of the king. So I hope next week we do get a little bit more from each of those story arcs. Kind of was a big Aria moment in the premiere episode. So oh, yeah, yeah. I definitely, definitely need to catch up with her. Yep. And with that, we're going to move on to the following now, right? Yeah, we're going to cover the following with the episode The Reaping. While Ryan tries to infiltrate the Corbin compound, Mike makes a life-changing decision and Claire asks Carrie to give Joe a message from her. Alright, let's kick this discussion off with what we are all thinking after this episode. Holy crap, Mike just shot Lily. I mean, at first I thought he might, but then he didn't instantly and I thought he was going to let his better nature get the better of him and take her into custody, and he even lowered his weapon. But by the time he shot her, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go and was nicely surprised by the decision. In fact, I was really surprised with the pace with which Lily's death was handled. Mike killing Lily was unexpected and exciting for the plot, though it does undo the season's worth of Lily's character arc and the tug of war there. And it will be interesting to see what happens to Mike after this, not to mention how Ryan and Max will react to his decision. Now, of course, we don't actually know where this will take Mike or how they will cover this up so he doesn't go down for murdering her, which let's be honest, is exactly what this was. So Andy, how do you see the show handling the fallout of Mike shooting Lily, and were you surprised that he actually pulled the trigger? 
You know, I've been sensing this whole season that he's going down this dark path, and I wasn't really surprised that he did it, although it, there was a second there where I thought, okay, they're not doing it this week at least, but then, boom, there went the dy dynamite, or <laughs> let's, or to be exact, there went the bullet into her chest. <laughs> right. Okay, never mind. But um, I think th this also s tells us something else, that this could potentially mean that Mike is going to become a villain in season 3. I think he's going to go completely dark and lose himself. That's interesting. I hadn't thought that way. That could be very interesting if he goes completely dark and wow. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Hmm. That could be really interesting actually, Andy. I'll have to think about that for a while. <laughs> now, something that seems a little out of place in this season is the whole Kingston Tanner stuff. Kingston Tanner, played by the great Tom Cavanaugh. Woohoo! Movie on Flash June. Yeah. Learned that his son Preston was abducted. It doesn't feel that Tanner has done enough to really warrant Joe's relentless retaliation, and the Tanner arc seems almost thrown in, included only because of Joe's retaliation against organized religion. Now, I love Tom Cavanaugh, but unless Tanner ends up more deeply connected with everything, he'll continue to stick out like a sore thumb, and his arc really doesn't quite fit this season. Also, Joe's holy war against religion seems to be taking the focus off Joe's need to kill and the passion for killing, and focusing more on his narcissistic need to be infamous as a prophet. As a pseudo-religious zealot, Joe gets to kill openly, but he seems less focused on the actual killing than ever before, and more on getting others to kill in his name. With his intriguing psychological attachment to killing almost seemingly gone, Joe's aimless jihad feels strange. Andy, have you noticed Joe's lack of killing this season? As far as I can tell, he's killed Mandy's mother, the preacher, that sophomore co-ed that Lily gave him, but he hasn't killed anyone other than Julia since arriving at Corbin, because I don't really count the poisoning of Micah, because that's not really a Joe Carroll style, but rather just a necessity to take over the cult. So Andy, why the focus on the religious war and not on Joe actually killing people this season? That's a good question. I'm not sure why. I think it. I'm wondering because he, you know, he kept talking about throughout a lot of these um, scenes in this episode that my time is almost up. You know, I'm right. I I can see the ending coming very soon. So I'm wondering if he wants to die with as little blood on his hands as possible. And I don't. Maybe Joe has gone completely religion, believes in a god now. But if he believes in God, he knows that he's not going to be forgiven. Um, or who knows? Maybe God would forgive him. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how religious stuff work anyway. But I I'm, it's a good question, but maybe he's trying to unleash the part that was the murderer onto everyone else, so that you know his legacy will be will be shared throughout these not cases, but instead of him still doing all that, I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I have no idea. It's a good question, or he's he just he's just fooling fooling with us. You know, when you said that he was focusing on not having much time left and the emphasis of that, that really made me think that it, you're probably right that that has to do with why he's doing it but I don't think it's for religious reasons I think it's for legacy reasons I think he wants to ensure that his legacy is that he has created these other killers and sent them out upon the world to kill in his name or in his remembrance so even if he's caught and put to death or dies in, in the process that his me message and his teachings of how to kill will live on in others much like his doctor mentor, even though he's now captured, Joe is still killing in the same style or in the same
same way that his mentor did. And in a sense, he continues to live on in Joe. So I think it's about legacy and about his immortality and his infamy as a serial killer. That is what he's really looking for is his his place in the serial killer hall of fame. Yeah. Now, Joe and Ryan's reunion scene made the episode as Purifoy and Bacon have an immaculate back and forth chemistry. As ridiculous as the sequence of events that led to Hardy being captured and brought before Carol were, Mm -hmm. the ends justify the terrible means in this case. In this fantastic scene, we see that Ryan understands Joe best because they are more similar than Ryan will even admit out loud. The humor when Joe says, oh, this is splendid. I've missed you, Ryan. And Ryan responds, I've missed you too, buddy. Was excellent. That that the was scene, too that was too happy to sound like Kevin Bacon and James Purifoy. Yeah, but it was kind of that that like offhanded, like humorous, funny. Oh yeah, buddy, I, I, I've missed you too. You know. And the scene where Joe forces Tanner's son Preston to kill that girl was a little predictable, but it felt thematically correct in fitting with Joe's new convincing slash forcing others to become killers theme in the second half of this season, which also plays into that sort of legacy I was talking about. Also, Joe doesn't know what to do with Ryan when he, Emma, and Robert leave Corbin. Emma suggests killing Ryan, but Joe chooses to leave a restrained Ryan behind, which seems to be simply because it's convenient to the plot. It would have made more sense for Joe to take Ryan along with him or kill him, but it makes none to leave Ryan behind. Andy, what did you enjoy about the reunion of Hardy and Carol, and do you think it made any sort of sense, besides plot-wise, for Joe to leave Hardy behind when he, Robert, and Emma escaped? Well, I think it's, if you think about it, Joe is kind of doing something similar that Slade is doing to Oliver right now on Arrow, that he doesn't want, you know, if he kills them, then his then his pain will, you know, he won't suffer at all. So maybe right. he has a, you know, a, a, you know, a thought back in his in his back head that uh, how he wants to do with Raya. So I felt it made sense and, um, but I love seeing those two together. It's like, I don't know, it, it's just fun seeing those two interact all the time, whether it's one being restrained, one being tied up, one being bloody, I don't know, but it was, I, I like that and it's like you said they have an amazing chemistry and yeah I, I think it makes sense for him to leave him behind because i think joe is like the joker to batman joker can live without having batman alive yeah and joe even mentioned that they they he couldn't he could no more kill him than he could kill himself in a sense so i, I totally agree the batman and joker reference is is right on andy because that's exactly how i felt as well okay well that's our discussion for this week's episode of the following thanks Andy for joining me again this week for the discussion and no I hope all of you will join us next week for the episode Silence. The penultimate episode before the season finale. How will it end? Alright guys, it's Dan here. I'm back in the party. Okay, we're going to cover a show that's sadly on the way out right now. It's another one of these shows that we're here on ATA, but I think it's going to go out with a bang. And that's Warehouse 13 with its season 5 premiere episode, Endless Terror. <laughs> Paracelsus and Claudia face off inside the warehouse. Claudia, Steve, and Artie discover Paracelsus has turned the warehouse into a house of horrors. The return of Warehouse 13 had me torn between being disappointed that we didn't get the Battle of Warehouse artifacts that I thought this episode would be, kind of enjoying what we ultimately got, which was a time travel story where Paracelsus manipulated past events to rule over the warehouse, kind the world in present day. In my opinion, I think the writers decided to hold on the artifact battle royale 
between quality of Paracelsus, because that's something that seems more suited for a series finale. But with that being said, I can't help but wonder if the writers should have just added an extra episode on the last season for this big fight over the warehouse. Can I just call that the series finale? Instead of giving us five more episodes, that could potentially jump the shark by trying to do too much. Nico, what's your thoughts on the matter? Should the writers have ended things last? Or are you good with us getting these final five episodes? Also, did you like this episode's time travel story, even though we weren't expecting this episode to go that direction? You know, Dan, maybe from a storytelling perspective, that might have worked better to finish last season with a giant warehouse battle between Claudia and Paracelsus. But I really wanted more episodes to tie up all the loose ends and resolve some of the major character arcs and dangling story threads that they've left so far. I'm not worried that these final five episodes this season will hurt the overall story or series. I think they're going to handle it very well, and I don't foresee it being a problem. As for this week's episode using time travel, I did like the way this story turned out, and the defeat of Paracelsus was actually fairly interesting the way they did it. I also love the idea that Mark A. Shepard's character was put in a position to be the potential big bad of the final season due to his time travel revamp. We obviously love Mark A. Shepard on this show, and him being part of the final season of Warehouse made my day. Really, I was I was happy with it. Well, we love Mark A. Shepard on any show. No, I meant on uh, across the airways show. Yes, you know we love him on our podcast. Yes, and we love him on every show he's ever been on that we we've talked about. So yeah, this is a great thing, and having him potentially be the big bad for the final season that that was just too mu- too much of a yeah. good thing. Glad he had seeds with Anthony Stewart ahead. Yeah. I thought of it. it was like, whoa. Um, and I and again with the defeat, I like that Pete caught Paracelsus. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think Pete was very underestimated by Paracelsus. I kind of treated like an idiot, and I'm glad he got back up. Good stuff. Agreed. You know, he, he was facing a villain that was a really serious threat to him, and I'm glad that went out on that one. Okay, now, even though this episode of Warehouse had its dark hearts, where it looked like Paracelsus and all, I was glad the show was able to maintain its regular brand of humor with Pete's warm eyes being funny, especially that joke about the Olive Garden, but a hokey with fun. And Steve being treated as Artie's crash dummy for Wild E. Coyote because they tried to find a way to get rid of the shield parts of Paracelsus put around the warehouse, only for Micah to tell him they just walked through it. In addition to that, Steve was stuck with the crappy job of having to pedal the station very much to keep the time portal open. Nico, were you abused by all the humorous heavy lifting Steve had to do in this episode? Also, because there were so many jokes flying around when Micah was explaining how they could just walk through the shield surrounding the warehouse. I kind of had a hard time of following her, so can you clarify the science behind this a little more? Yeah, you know, I did really enjoy the humor this week, and Steve doing much of the heavy lifting with regard to the funny this week was, was a good change, because usually it's Pete, yeah. but I liked Steve having a chance to really lead the, the funny this week. Of course, Pete had the best lines, but the physical humor Steve brought this week was definitely great. As for the shield, they said it drew its power from a star system that was focused through the observatory up on the mount and that then beamed the force field shield down to surround the warehouse and keep it safe. Micah and Pete merely needed to go up to the observatory and turn off that and replace it with a holographic version of the shield so that Paracelsus would not notice. Thus, they merely needed to walk through the hologram, but prior to turning off the observatory machine, that would not have worked because it was an actual force field. So that's where they went. Yeah. Okay, good. So it was blocking them out when Steve crashed the car into it and all that stuff. Yep. And then Pete and Micah changed. Yep, they just turned okay. off the turned off the actual force field and replaced it with a hologram version of it. Because I took it as, oh, we're just warehouse agents. We could just walk through. Nope. Okay, good. Okay. Much better explanation. I knew it was there. I just wanted to see if caught it. Because they're, they're pretty good about those things on this show. Yeah, yeah. Micah explained it. And actually, she said something right before they walked through. It was yeah. just, you know, with everything going on 
on, it, it's tough to always catch every yeah. little detail. Okay, moving on, this episode also kind of began to give us a feel of the final season. Because we got several name drops and appearances of reoccurring characters throughout the series of Hunk and Vanessa. Although the fact that we saw alternate versions, or alternate timeline versions, of these two characters kind of makes me hope that we'll see them again, as in their regular self, especially in regards to Vanessa. Because I see Artie's in-game, I say retiring with her, but some resolution is needed in their romance as a result of Artie briefly going evil. So, Nika, do you think we will see the original versions of these characters again? And are there any other reoccurring characters you'd like to see before the series is through? I do see at least Vanessa returning in her normal timeline, because there is that unresolved romance with Artie, and we want to see how that plays out. So I do see her coming back, at least in her normal timeline. I really hope that she does return, and they wrap up that arc nicely, though I don't necessarily see them retiring, but living out their lives together, working for the warehouse, or even becoming regents or something to stay part of the warehouse for life. Also, even though this is not a returning character, I also would like to see Claudia's sister show up in an episode. In fact, I think we will see that if the preview of Things to Come is accurate, or my interpretation of that is accurate. Now, I foresee her being a crazy version of Claudia, or an evil version that has gone crazy and turned evil. Something like that. And we'll explain why Claudia maybe ended up in that mental hospital so that she didn't also go in the same path. Could be an interesting story to follow, and I think it could be some really interesting stuff. And the fight over the warehouse could be between sisters. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that might be much more powerful. Because, I mean, the Percelsius thing was great, but it's not like they had a connection to each other. Right, right. Because it would be interesting if there's two villains that had more of a a Darth Vader, Skywalker thing going on, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it would be really interesting to see that. And as we said before, the biggest character return was ATA favorite Mark H. Shepard coming back. And I know you might have felt differently, but I kind of thought his character on this show was kind of a red shirt. Because he kind of got killed way back, what was it, season two? I believe so, Yeah. yeah. But I think this alternate version of Valda, his character, holds much more significance through a sci-fi match made in heaven of him actually being Anthony Stewart's henchman. Now, Nika, what kind of was your thoughts on getting to see this all-star cast? Did you like the twist they pulled with the Valda character? I mean, I know you always like the show. Yeah, yeah. As I said earlier, I think he will be this season's potential big bad. And his inclusion this season was a complete surprise for me and a really great one at that. I can't wait to see what this new timeline version of Valda will do and what kind of trouble he will cause for the warehouse team. It's going to be a good arc, and I, I really hope he is the big bad. That, that'd be a lot of fun. And it redeems warehouse in my eyes with their use of Mark A. Shepard. Well, I thought he was a good regent. I thought what how they used him to sort of combat the warehouse in the early, early time of Pete and yeah. Micah as agents and sort of be a foil to them. It was was good. I, I thought it got wrapped up too quickly. And I think that was because Mark A. Shepard had so many other yes. commitments that they couldn't keep him for an entire season. Now he's on Supernatural, but that's about it at the moment. Right. And I think the schedule for shooting was, uh, was lax enough between the two that he could make it work so he could be on both shows. And they're relatively shooting a shot at the same location. Right. So it's a matter of going to the different set yeah. in the same city city rather than having to get on a plane and fly to another city. Exactly. Yeah. Because we've seen that with their use of psych actors cut warehouse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kind of following that up with some future speculation. Uh, Nico, will Mark A. Shepard's character on bronze for Celsius to set up the battle with Claudia? I thought we were going to get to this episode. Or is Mark A. Shepard just going to end up being this big bad, this season's big bad, who has his own agenda? 
Also, are we going to see a team up between Valda and Claudia's sister? Or are those stories going to separate from each other? You know, honestly, I could see it going either way. As I said, I think Mark A. Shepard will be the big bad of the season. But whether he joins up with Paracelsus or Claudia's sister really doesn't matter because either one will probably be amazing. I think keeping Claudia's sister out of that story makes more sense to me and having her story be separate. And then Valda and Paracelsus, maybe both versions of Paracelsus being on bronze, going up against Claudia in the warehouse in a final massive battle like you were thinking this episode might have been will be really cool. That's how I see it going. Especially, just this just came to me. If Claudia and her sister have their battle in one of the earlier episodes this season and Claudia is able to redeem or save her sister and then it's the two sisters going up against Paracelsus to Paracelsus and Valda in a massive final battle for the warehouse, that would be amazing. That would be cool. So, I guess that's how I now see it going. (laughs) But it could just as easily be Valda and Claudia's sister going up against Claudia and the warehouse team. It, It Really, at this point, they could go anywhere and that's exciting in a final season that you don't know exactly where things are going to go. They, they still can come out and surprise us. And I think they've raised the stakes pretty Absolutely. high for a final season. Absolutely. I think it's, it's so good. Work. Again, that's why I'm not concerned with these last five being right. not up to par or damaging the overall story. I think it's going to be exactly what we expect from Warehouse. And unfortunately, I think they could have went for a full ride. Oh, I think so season. too. I think so too. Or at least, you know, 10 or 13. Right, exactly. I think there was enough. But maybe this is what they felt was best. Maybe this is what worked best with everyone's schedule. Yeah, exactly. So, so we'll, we'll go with what, I guess, works and what they felt comfortable with. Good. Finally, after five years of us asking, where the hell has it been? The writers made a direct reference to Micah being Pete's love interest after she discovered he risked the warehouse to save life. Nico, is five episodes enough time to address a romance between and Micah, or is it going to feel kind of rushed? Plus, are you with me on the contestant that the cancer thing with Micah might not entirely be over based on already noticing that she was coughing? I think the final five episodes will be enough time for Pete and Micah's romance because it has been building since nearly the beginning. I think we're going to see Pete and Micah in an alternate reality or situation where they are married or pretending to be married and it's going to finally click for Micah and that will be when she realizes that it's more than just friends slash partners and that there are romantic feelings there and maybe have been there forever. So yeah, I think we have plenty of time for that arc to be done right and I'm not too concerned about it. Just like I'm not too concerned about there only being five episodes this season, I think they're going to be able to fit everything in. I also agree with you that this cancer is not done. Nobody goes in for emergency surgery for benign tumors when the world is falling apart and you can be a part to stop it. Whether she is lying to herself or to everyone else is to be seen, but I think her cancer scare is still very much alive. That situation might still be part of what brings her and Pete together in the end, like I speculated last season, and I think you agreed with me when we thought that that was going to be what ultimately brought them together. I guess we'll see exactly how these writers go to wrap up this series-long uh, will-they-or-won't-they relationship, but I, I I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be really well done in uh, this five-episode season. Okay, the cancer scare is still what might bring them together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because if he did save his life, he did risk everything to save her life because of the cancer, so that's still on the board. Yeah, I mean, I loved it. She she punched him and said, I'm your partner, not your girlfriend, and, it's, you know, it was kind of a look on Pete's face. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I thought I saw a look of, yeah, but you should be more. <laughs> yeah. You know. That's what they wanted for us. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. Well, I think that covers Warehouse 13 pretty well. Yep. God, we're going to go into an episode of Person of Interest that also turned the tables on. It kind of shocked me a little bit like a uh, concerned wedding we got in Game of Thrones. So let's talk about the Person of Interest episode. That was a big surprise to me, but I enjoyed it. Death Benefit. <laughs> Reese poses as a Secret Service agent to get close to the latest person of interest, a U.S. congressman who may hold the key to derailing Decimus' plans to bring a second machine online. This week's person of interest started out as a fun Reese and Fitch team-up episode, which escalated the action on protecting a U.S. congressman, played by veteran actor John Hurd. Through the dark humor of Reese, having to take a pop shot, got the congressman to join his Secret Service detail. On that, getting our hero into deeper work, until he was forced to end up kidnapping the congressman. Nico, did you enjoy this primarily being a recent Fitch team-up episode? Okay, what did you think of John Hurd's performance as the congressman who seemed to be a spinning image of the greedy politicians we unfortunately have in our home state of Illinois? You know, I did enjoy the recent Finch team-up in this episode. A few weeks ago, when Finch and Fusco teamed up, we mentioned that we were looking forward to an opportunity for these two, Reese and Finch, to work just the two of them together again, and this was a great chance to do so. Now, as for John Hurd's performance, it was excellent. He played the slimeball ball. Illinois politician perfectly and had me believing for a while that he had no idea what was going on and he was the victim of Decima. But I should have known better with a politician from Illinois. Corruption seems to breed there these days. Yeah, John Hurd's a great actor, by the way. Yep. I always like his appearances. And he's very good at playing this type of character, as well as others. But uh, he had a great spot on Battlestar Galactica. That's what always sticks out with him, with me. But uh, he's good as the slime ball this week. Wasn't he recently on Castle as well? Or was that a couple years ago? He was on Castle. Okay. I, I think it was last season. Was it last season? Okay. Yeah, it was a great appearance for there, too. Yeah. And uh, I also really liked how this episode played it's the writer's intention of always keeping personal interest format as a series fresh by introducing this scenario of team having to deal with the acts of violence that the machine deals as, themes as relevant and irrelevant now. Because it allows the writers to bring a character into the story whenever they want to without a lot of explanation, like what happened with Shaw in this episode. In addition to that, the ability to send a team member off on another mission sets the stage for great action-packed character interests. We also got sets the stage for great action-packed character references, as we also got with Shaw, because she showed up to take out that pesky decimal agent with her car. Nico, were you a fan of how they portrayed to having to deal with both the, era, the relevant and irrelevant threats found by the machine? Did it work as a good excuse to sideline a character like Shaw until she was needed in the episode? Yeah, Dan, exactly. It allows for the suspense to build and the audience to get wrapped up in what is going on in the scene and almost forget about the team member not there. This week, that allowed Shaw to show up at the exact right moment and save Reese and Finch. I suspect we will see more of that with Root as well showing up like she does just in the nick of time. Right. I also it also makes me wonder if Shaw might eventually want maybe a direct connection with the machine like Root has for tactical purposes, or if she will prefer like Reese to rely on her instincts and training. It you know, but this just got me thinking about those sort of things because she went off and went on a mission with Root and did her own thing, and then all of a sudden Root's like, "Yeah, you're not coming with me. You got to go back and save the boys." And then she shows up just in the nick of time to write as they needed her. So I think that would make for a good episode story. 
where she goes uh, at, at, reaches a point where she debates yeah. what to do. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting because it works so well for Root, but would it work for Shaw? We we just don't know. Can I could see Reese and Fitch being on the other you know, side of, do you really want to do that to yourself? Right. Is that the best case scenario? Okay, actually, that would be a really good um, Shaw-Fusco episode. If they're yeah, going to would. build that, that relationship or romance up or whatever we think that is at this point. Right, yeah. I think it would be a great, great opportunity for both development there, but also because Fusco is sort of, I don't right. want to know about the machine. I don't want to know yes. how it works. So we talked about that, I think, the last time we talked about person of interest uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're right on target there that that would be the team up where she starts to talk about it out loud. Maybe I would be more effective if I had that do you really want to do that to yourself you know and so like them going back and forth on it would be really interesting and it would be sort of the audiences do we want another character that has this and our way of sort of working out those feelings with them on screen and doing it that'd be a lot of fun yeah person of interest writers we demand a credit for that if you do that episode <laughs> yeah exactly that was our idea but maybe an interview too that'd be cool even though they probably wouldn't tell us anything right I- I'll go for just the interview yeah. you can have you can have my story idea as long as I get an interview, right? Right, right. With something about what's it called? Some kind of scoop, but they probably won't do that. Anyhow, guys, for the twist, which acted as the cornerstone of the episode, I always thought that stopping Samaritan would take its home on the team by either crippling New York City, making them watch as innocent people die, or severely injuring one of our favorite team members, which are still things still on the table. But I never thought it would threaten their morale, because the machine basically asked the person of interest team to kill the congressman to stop Samaritan from coming online. Now, with that being said, I liked how the writers established that the machine would only ask the team to do something like this in an absolute worst-case scenario, so we don't have to constantly go over this conflict, losing the machine's integrity in the process. But I don't like the characters saying that the machine was asking them to kill. Because after our many arguments, Nico, you've kind of shown me that basically the machine uses fact information to predict possible outcome. But it's up to the user to make the decision to act. And yes, the user, as in Finch, made the wrong decision with keeping Root locked up, as that led to Carter's death. But here I think with the decision that was ultimately made regarding the congressman, we are going to see the machine was wrong. Even though I don't think it's going to prevent Samaritan from drawing some kind of blood. Nico, did you buy into this possibility? That if things got bad enough, the machine would ask the team to Also, what would you have done if you were put in this situation? You know, Dan, once again, I, I don't actually think the machine was telling the team they had to kill the congressman. I think that was Reese and Shaw interpreting the intel that the machine gave them and yeah. making a decision, or rather an argument, not a decision, but an argument okay. that that was what the machine was telling them to do. In reality, I think the machine was, as you put it, giving the information and presenting choices or options right. for the team. I'm glad that Finch was able to convince them not to kill the congressman because that is a decision that I can't support. Killing the congressman is a decision I cannot support. Within the morality of this show, that was a red line that Finch and the audience could not cross. So to answer your question, Stan, I do not buy into the idea that the machine would instruct or suggest that the team kill in order to achieve its goal. Because its goal is to right. save people. Control decided that they would use the intel to kill terrorists and prevent the attacks. They could have just as easily, many times, not always, I'm, I'm going to qualify that, that they right. could not always capture terrorists instead. The person of interest team must save the irrelevant numbers and whenever possible, not kill process, no matter the cost. I see them having a similar code of conduct as Batman and thus should have a no-kill policy. 
that would be my policy as well, and thus I would not have killed the congressman right. in this situation. And I think that's what they were trying to establish in this episode of what was going on. I hope so. Yeah, but again, it gets it gets tricky because you don't want to, I guess, be a knockoff of Batman or, or you know, be just Batman. I know a lot of people like to say we don't want to be seen as a superhero show. Right. I think this is a vigilante superhero show. I mean, they don't necessarily have powers, but they're using a, a tactical advantage to stop crime. I mean, does that fit the genre? Yeah, I think it. I think it is a so, superhero story told a different way. Yeah. It's not a costume superhero. It's right. a, a more of a realistic superhero sort of story. And and I, I think it's wrong to for them or anyone to say that it's not a superhero story because I I would I would agree, argue that it is as well. Right. Sure. Okay, personally, I mean, once Reese mentioned that Carter was killed because they didn't listen to the machine, I really thought he would have killed the congressman. That bothered me, because I'm like, I hope that's not what happened. And I'm glad that was not the case. And, you know, I'm fine with that because it also makes things easier to mend the fences with Finch following his departure from the team at the end of the episode. On top of that, even if Reese had killed the congressman, I still think Greer would have found a way to make Samaritan operational. I feel like it's inevitable. And the only way it really could truly be stopped is if Greer, the mastermind behind it all, is killed or apprehended or taken off the table. But I do think the team succeeded in condensing the damage Samaritan is going to cause down to a level that a TV show can work with, with the test drive of Samaritan turning New York City into, you know, a no man's land, similar to the Batman story of the same name for the Dark Knight Rises. Nico, were you satisfied that they did kill the Congress? And would have killing him really stopped Greer? No, Dan, you're correct that Greer would have found a way to get Samaritan up and running with or without this congressman. If this one had died, there would be others at the same committee yeah. that would be bought, though probably not as easily as the Illinois congressman, but still, he could have found a way. Or just went around the government to hell. Right, right. But I think to get initially those feeds in New York yeah. City, he needs the government. Right. I'll talk in a moment about where or whether I think that once he has access, he still needs anything from the government. Okay. Well, finally, this episode ended with the cliffhanger of Greer using the beta test of Samaritan to eliminate Finch, who has gone off the grid to the, due to the machine's display of immorality, at least what he considered to be. But I think what's going to get Finch back on the team is what I mentioned before about realizing the machine leaves it up to the user on how to handle a person of interest, whether they need to be killed or not. Nico, do you think this is going to have to be done to get Finch back on the person of interest team? Will Reese and Shaw saving Finch from Samaritan be enough, or are we going to see a dividing line being drawn between the team, with maybe Fusco and Finch on one side, and Reese and Shaw and Root on the other? And, and do you think New York City's in for a no man's land scenario, as we had in the season four? Dan, I don't see New York City being in for a no man's land scenario, because if that were to happen, then Decima and Greer would lose the support of the U.S. government for Samaritan, yeah. and thus it would be shut down and shut out of the security feeds that it needs. Of course, that is assuming that once it is up and running, as I mentioned before, that it can be shut back out, because the machine evolved and was able to prevent itself from being shut down and shut out when it moved itself. Right. So maybe maybe once Samaritan's up and running in this episode and the one coming up, it won't be able to be shut out and shut down again. But still, I can't foresee New York City being radically changed and shut off from the rest of the world in this series. I just don't 
see it going that route. I think that's too extreme for this show to stay within the realm of reality. Now, as for Finch, I think the machine will find him and protect him, but also maybe start pestering him with new numbers as well. Essentially, the machine saving him and forcing him to save others will maybe reinvigorate him and remind him that he can't walk away from the responsibility and his purpose of saving these numbers. It may take the number of his fiance coming up or someone else he cares about to finally awaken him from his stupor, but it will be the relentless numbers that bring him back into the fold. Reese Shaw and Fusco will be involved as well, of course, but it will be the mission that brings Finch back. That's how I see it going down, but probably not until the season premiere next season will he be fully reintegrated into the team. Yes. That's at least how I see it going. Okay, so it's going to be a next season cliffhanger kind of thing. I think so. I think so. You know, I feel like something massive is going to happen to the city. Maybe not the No Man's Land, but I mean, I could see something like where maybe the the stoplights go crazy and stuff like that going on. Yeah, I could see some of that going on while they're pursuing somebody or they're trying to catch somebody when Decima starts taking over. But I don't foresee it going to the extreme of the No Man's Land where the city is essentially cut off from the rest of the world or becomes sort of a wasteland or, you know, much like we saw in The Dark Knight Rises or if you read that comic book series which essentially was all of 1999, I think, in the Batman world. Yeah, if you read that entire year's worth of comic books, then you would know what Dan and I were talking about. Or if you saw the movie, you know, with essentially it being cut off from the rest of the world, they blew up the bridges, they made it so that nobody could go in or out, and it was essentially a cesspool of crime and, and debauchery, and then Batman eventually was able to bring it back from the brink, and we would see the person of interest team trying to do the same as the two machines battle it out for supremacy within New York. I think that's almost too extreme. I think we could see it going down without the whole decimation of the population or decimation of the city. Because they're making the thing sound like Skynet. Yeah, and I think we could see it go that way, just it's in the background. People aren't seeing it happening, but the battle is going on, almost like what the Person of Interest team has been doing with the criminal underworld. It's in the background. Sometimes the cops get involved, but really, it's going to be in the background and nobody's going to really notice. So it's going to be a shadow war. I could see see it very much being a shadow war. And I think that makes it more interesting than being an overt, everybody in your face sort of thing. I think that makes it a lot more interesting. And I think I actually would enjoy that more, I think. And it's more feasible for a TV show. Exactly. It's going to be very difficult to blow up all the bridges in New York and, and continue to keep that imagery around and, and not have, you know, 5 million people in Manhattan. But an argument could be made that these, this show has followed the pattern of the Batman films. In a grand sense of yeah. things, yes, I could, I could definitely get on board with that. But I don't think that that, just because it has followed that, that it necessarily yeah, has to. to follow it to the extreme and or to where, the conclusion. And that's where I wanted to go. I don't want it to follow that. Yeah. I want them to do their own thing. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, you could use some of the bases that they would think that would This is personal interest, not that one. Exactly. Show the difference. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to uh, the old man on ATA and on its network, Supernatural, with episode Metafiction.
Metatron attempts to get Castiel to join forces with him. Still furious with Metatron, Castiel refuses, which sets a surprising plan in motion. Meanwhile, Sam and Dean capture Gadriel. This week's episode of Supernatural, or Metatron as the opening titles called it, gave us Metatron's perspective on the conflict occurring this season with the Fallen Angels and Gadriel. And in my opinion, some of it was quite perplexing, so I'm hoping Nico can help me decipher this episode through our conversation. On that note, my first dose of perplexing plot devices came from the return of the crowd-pleasing character Gabriel, better known as the trickster. It was great to have this character back on the show to inspire Cass to becoming a leader, but I got lost in it as much if he was a ghost or illusion created by Metatron. My guess is that because Metatron has been established as a new god, he can essentially bring anyone back, which will work wonders as an excuse for our favorite supernatural allies and villains to return to the final season 10, when it's possible they have bigger plans on explaining the trickster's return. Nico, what did you make of the trickster or Gabriel making a comeback on this episode? Dan, my understanding was that Metatron attacked Cass or captured Cass in his motel room and put him in some sort of trance or dream state in which he used the memory or idea of Gabriel slash the trickster as a way to get Cass to experience what he needed to experience to become the leader of the resistance against Metatron. Thus, the trickster never really came back, but rather was just used in the Matrix-like state Cass was in while Metatron brought him back to his writing room. Much like what the Nanites did to Aaron on Revolution a few weeks ago, Metatron attempted to trick Cass into becoming the leader against him and the villain in Metatron's new Bible or story he's telling. That's why when Cass realized that the trickster was not there in the gas station or what it, or that it wasn't real, he woke up in Metatron's base. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yes. Okay. That's how I interpreted it and understood it as happening. Okay, so it was just a dream sequence where characters are coming back and whatnot. Yeah, it was it was like inside the Matrix. Right. Weird choice of character. <laughs> but, That's a great choice of character. I love that character. <laughs> good, good. I, I don't like it being used. I like him playing pranks on people out of his own. Well, that's what made me really enjoy it was because even, even though it was just the, in the Matrix... He's still like, you weren't 100% sure that it wasn't right. somehow still the trickster. Because when he said, "Are you, were you even real? And he winked at him, you know? And it was like, oh, wait, wait, is he real in the Matrix or is he not real in the Matrix? Come on. No, that was great stuff. And, and only the trickster could work like yeah, that. Yeah, that's an entertaining part of that character. Because at the same time, while this was going on, Sam and Dean finally captured Goodreal. And really all I've got to say about this is that through several torture scenes, we got to see Gadrell be that villain who can really get under the Winchester's skin by knowing everything about them. But I'm wondering if he's going to remain as an enemy, because I'm wondering if he's going to become the unpredictable variable in Metatron's story, because he didn't seem to react very well to Metatron just letting him get captured by the Winchesters. Nico, I know not a whole lot happened, but was there anything you took away from this plotline revolving around the Winchesters torturing Gadriel? I think the only thing of interest with regard to Gadriel's story this week was that he wanted Dean to kill him. That makes me think that he has begun to think that he is on the wrong side of this battle and wants to be killed rather than be responsible for letting leave evil into the kingdom once again like he did with the serpent back in the garden. That could mean that he has already decided that he does not agree with Metatron, but does not see a way to defeat him. He may believe later that Sam and Dean are the best bet, or Cass maybe is, an attempt to redeem himself by helping take down Metatron from within. That's just an idea I got after seeing him beg to be killed this week, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. 
He's going to have to do a sacrificial death. I think you're right, but do you agree that maybe he's he's realizing he's on the wrong side and yeah. just wants to be killed rather than be responsible for the letting evil into the, the kingdom again? Yeah, I agree. Okay. I, I, I mean, he, he did it once, and I think he feels guilty about that. Good, so I think he's going to fix it. I, I really believe this character is following he's he's sam before sam you know he's the precursor to sam okay so i feel like he's going to go on that similarly okay because sam essentially met evil in the world and he found redemption uh-huh but i think that may end up being an example for Metatron, uh for kedriel as the story goes because he was in his head so he has to know all of right so that's where i think it's going to be okay but very good idea on your part there Got really moving forward, I think the intent behind Metatron's actions, centering on telling a story to entertain himself, is a brilliant way to continue to shift back for breaking the fourth wall, while staying within his own context. In a way that's really going to hype up the final scene of Supernatural. But I'm confused at what Metatron would gain by finishing his story, since ending it would leave him bored with nothing to do again. In my opinion, I think this means Metatron might be writing a story to have a happy ending. Because yes, he has done some bad things with killing Kevin, but they haven't indicated he wants to cause something like the eradication of mankind. So maybe he's out to help the Winchester in a way that's only going to make sense when we get to the end of the story. What's your thoughts on that theory, Nico? Dan, I think Metatron is delusional. I think he, like most villains, think they are the hero of the story and are doing the right thing. So I do not believe that Metatron will have a happy ending, but rather will be revealed to be the true villain, and the Winchesters and Cass will have to show him the error of his ways by defeating him. So I, I don't see your theory panning out, but that's okay. just my take on where this is going. I, it could just as easily be what you suggested, but that's not where I see it going. I think he's delusional and he thinks he's actually writing a right. story where he's the hero, and in fact he is going to be shown to be the villain. Because I mean, I just didn't know if this was the way of, you know, pushing the brothers down the hard path or these things need to happen to protect the universe. But again, this could be sort of like what Ezekiel was doing with the apocalypse, setting events into motion because he thought they were the right thing, but they really weren't. Right. And so maybe Metatron is like the evil version of Chuck. Okay. Or not. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. Because I mean, the thing is, God, essentially, if you you read the Bible and you look at those stories, he essentially put a lot of those people or those prophets through hardship and things that maybe weren't, would kind of think could be considered as cruel, but you know, it's a hardship. And we've seen the brothers have to go through a lot of death and hardship and stuff to essentially ultimately save the world for the bigger picture. So I don't know if that's what they're going with this, with this or not. Huh. I, I don't know. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, we see, I mean, in, in biblical stories, we see God kill the firstborn child. Right. And do some things that's like, you know, kind of on the fence for some people, morally. That's And again, I'm, I'm looking at this as a piece of literature. Sure. Instead sure. of, you know, um, just, just to clarify that. Right. Well, they're, right. You have to, you have to right. sort of, if you're going to use it as a source material for a fictional world, yeah. you have to d- devoid yourself of your beliefs right. and use it as a literature source. And you can draw from it and you can change things so that it works within your story, but maybe doesn't hold true to right. the beliefs associated with that. And if you're going to do that, you have to be very careful not to right. piss off the, the people who you whose uh you know traditions you're you're right exactly borrowing from i don't want to say stealing from borrowing from okay. so, supernatural has done a very good job of borrowing from everyone's tradition yeah and that's one of the things that makes this show so great is that they do borrow from many many traditions you know we saw all kinds of eastern western christian muslim jewish 
Hindu, all the these different, yeah, Norse, absolutely, all all these different mythos and belief systems, and they bring them all together and they incorporate them into a single world where all of it's possible. And I think it's very religion friendly while yeah. still using a lot of the supernatural from that and making them villains, making them good guys. It, it's really interesting how they go about that, and I think it's been done very well. I think what they're doing with Metatron is is going to work out very well and in the end we're gonna it's gonna make perfect sense just right now we're trying to you know we're halfway through and we're trying to make full sense right. of it and that always can be difficult God, there was a lot left on the table in this episode for us to make sense out of yeah to go what is this Peter? where are we going? <laughs> where is this going what is going on when it started off and it was metatron sort of talking to the audience later it's shown that he's talking to yeah. castiel but he's breaking the fourth wall in a sense talking directly right. to the audience i was like what is this episode gonna be how's it gonna work how is it going to work within the continuity of the entire s story? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is supernatural. They break the fourth wall all the time. Right. Well, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is going to be a good episode. And really, there were the big things that were left on the table. A big part was at the end with Cass making the discovery that Dean had been given the mark of Cain. Got Nico, was that what we were supposed to believe convinced Cass to take up Metatron's office? to leave the fallen angels because it meant that in Cass's minor he thought that was a sign that Dean was going down the villain's path. Also, what did you think about Metatron giving Cass all the knowledge of pop culture? Because this take away one of the major aspects that made his that made us love his time as a human and his development as a character throughout the season. I do think that Dean having the Mark Kane was a contributing factor and probably the final factor that convinced Cass to take up the mantle of leader of the fallen angels and go after Metatron. But I don't think it is because he thinks Dean is headed down a villain's path, but maybe just a dark path. I think he believes Dean made a mistake in doing that and taking the mark, and that it is the wrong move, but that does not mean Dean will completely change his character and become a villain, or even that Cass believes that that could be possible. I've said a number of times that I think Dean's path may be dark this season, but it will not be evil or villainous. He will do some things that are questionable, and the mark may be difficult to resist, and the hatred and fury it evokes may be difficult for Dean to control, but Dean will ultimately prevail in his battle with Abaddon and the Mark. So I think I, I think that maybe thinking Dean having a villainous or going a villain's route is the wrong way to look at it. Rather that just he may do some things that are questionable and they go right up to the line, but there's a line that he will not cross, that he will be able to resist whatever the influence of the Mark is, that he will not cross that red line and will be will remain the hero of the story. Now, I think Metatron gave Cass the entirety of pop culture because the joke or gag of Cass not knowing any of these references had played itself out, and this was an easy way to instantly give Cass the required knowledge he needed and would have gained in a life as a human. I still think there will be humor involved with him not being able to put the references in context, like this week's Death Star reference. Essentially, he will have the knowledge, but not the sense of humor to understand the context of the jokes. So I don't see it ruining all the things we loved about Cass. It'll just change it, and I think it'll still be really good. Okay. So I, I actually think it's going to make it for some fun and different jokes revolving around Cass not understanding the reference. He knows the reference. He knows what they're talking about now, but he doesn't understand the joke. Okay, so there's still fun to have in that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that works. And the Mark of Cain thing, just to all angels, that's going to be something that's going to throw them off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that was enough to like be like, oh man, I really need to step in here and do something. 
Right, and I think Cass might have not known what to do at the time. So he's looking, or it's like Gandalf seeing the ring. You know, he read, ran off to research what it was. Yep. I feel like that's what Cass was doing. He's like, ooh, that's not good. Let me go back and figure out how to way to get rid of this stuff, or what to do about it. And I think that covers our supernatural stuff for the week. I think so. All right, so with that, we're going to move on to the sitcom section. We're going to talk about New Girl for the episode Big News. Hey, girl, what you doing? Hey, girl, where you going? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? It's just... The morning after their breakup, Jess and Nick scramble to keep it a secret from the loftmates. Meanwhile, Winston passes his police academy entrance exam and demands the gang throw him a honey roast. My favorite comedic moments from this week, Google. Would have to be a toss up between Nick venting to Tran about his breakup, because I find Tran having no idea what Nick is saying as hilarious. Schmidt banging on the door, trying to figure out what Jess and Cece were talking about. And Coach's greeting he had to give everyone to hide knowing that Jess and Nick broke up. It made me giggle that Coach had to give everyone such an awkward name, but I completely lost it, which Schmidt just went along with Coach, even though he had no idea what was going on. Nika, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's episode of New Girl? God, did you see any signs of Jess and Nick's breakup hurting this show's momentum or comedy wise? My favorite comedic moments from this week included Winston's offhanded comment that, yeah, my uncle's been on cops a bunch of times, but he's poor. Jamie Lee Curtis as Jess's mom crying about never becoming a grandma and saying, you don't even have to love him, just get that sperm cooking. Nick's inadvertent battle of the breakup movies when he kept confusing Ghost and Dirty Dancing. And then there was Coach's love of Winston yawning. And I absolutely love the Nick and Tran scenes and his one-sided conversation with Tran was amazing. Thanks, Tran. If I'd met you in your prime during the war, that would have been glorious. But then we would have been enemies and tried to murder one another unless we formed an alliance. Oh, you and me formed an alliance in an old school war? That's a fantasy or a novel. You just gave me another idea. Good stuff. Oh, and one of the best lines of the episode, who wins in a fight? Swayze from Dirty Dancing or Swayze from Roadhouse? To which Jess answered, I think Tu Wong Fu Swayze wins it all. Nice. Dan, as for your question about whether New Girl is in trouble after the breakup of Nick and Jess, no, I don't think so. If this episode is any indication, it looks just fine. This episode was funny, had some great gags and ridiculous situations, all things that made the show great before they got together. Do I think they eventually need Nick and Jess back together? Yes, I do. Just like I think Schmidt and Cece will end up together as well. But until those things happen, I expect some hilarious situations to happen that will ultimately get us there in a couple seasons. Yeah, and the show's still having fun. Yeah, it's so it's a worried. lot of fun, and I think there's no indication that this breakup is going to interrupt that at all. Great, and the chemistry between Jess and Nick are still there. It's still there even though they're broken up. Exactly. And that's great stuff. And we can still have fun being around when it's not a constant fight, so that's a good deal. Okay, with that, let's move on to the episode, which may be its last, but we'll see. Let's talk about the community episode, Basic Sitch. The history of Greendale's first dean is uncovered in the season 5 finale. Meanwhile, Annie and Abed search for an abandoned computer lab, Chang becomes involved in Subway's plan to take over Greendale, and Jeff and Britta make a decision about their futures. Goonies never say die, but neither does community, as this week's episode used a plethora of 70s and 80s pieces to have the study group face feeling that's been opposed on us as community fans by NBC and critics on the internet to give up on our hope for six seasons at a movie. Can I just accept that the show is over? Personally, I don't want to come to the consensus that 
that community is open. But if we have to go there, Abed worked beautifully because Dan's Armin's conduit to use our to use our possible heartbreak by reminding us that it's not the network or the sponsor's show. It's our show, and no one can take away our choice to enjoy it. The fact our enjoyment might just be what wins the fight for communities sixth season. And fight for it we shall, as Dan Harmon drew the line in the sand against NBC with my favorite comedic moment of the subset, which was the credit sequence featuring promos for a bunch of ridiculous new TV series ideas. Introducing a new network model of depends on what fails, which is a phrase that sums up NBC for the past couple of TV seasons. Although, even though this is a funny way to get community fans fired up, it's still a gamble on Dan's Harmon's part, since this could tick off NBC enough to cancel the show. But if this is truly the end, we will always have Dave Matthews back, because community was introduced to me by my friend Kyle Jeffrey, who's the biggest Dave fan ever. So it's fitting that the sounds of Dave Matthews brought it to an end, if it is the end. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this episode, and do you think this is the end? Dan, my favorite comedic moments from this week included Open the Door by The Secret Doors, yes. and the best musical lyric ever, especially time to the duration of the opening process. And then from the subsequent Close the Door, faster than it opened for dramatic effect. <laughs> yes. Richie's mind meld with Hickey was insanely fantastic. And wacko. I robbed your brain. I robbed it. I also loved all of Abed's suggestions for a Britta and Jeff spinoff. And they're all NBC-ready titles, like Better With My Worst Half, okay. Awfully Wedded, Tying the Knot, not spelled N-O-T, and hashtag Couples People Problems. And of course, almost daring NBC to cancel it, there was the NBC destroying N-tag sizzle reel that Dan mentioned, which, as I said, was a great way for the show to dare the network to cancel it. How great were these show titles? Thought Jacker, Intensive Karen, Mr. Egypt, Celebrity Beat Off, Captain Cook. Because remember, it all depends on what fails. Yes. Just like Community's chance of getting a season six. I thought Intensive Karen was the biggest insult. Oh, yeah. That was for Ironside. <laughs> oh, that was a slap in the face for Ironside. Yes. I loved it. A plot, a plot, a plot. Even though I liked the lead actor on show that was on Ironside. Yeah, it was a terrible show. But the show was terrible. <laughs> I agree. So great stuff. Great stuff. And a great cameo from BJ Novak. Yeah. Yeah. Another showrunner to appear on the show. This yeah, exactly. So good stuff. Okay. With that, let's move on to the Airways Rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. ENT. We know drama. Yeah, we're going to kick things off this week with the Americans episode entitled New Car. of the Jennings spies find their latest mission without cost. Meanwhile, Stan's conflict with Olga sees him trying to get access to an American military program. I'm not sure anyone, character-wise, had a good time in the episode New Car, this season's slow-turning eighth installment directed by John Dahl and written by Peter Ackerman. Between Henry getting caught creepy-crawling, Larrick attempting to get free of the KGB, Stan getting deeper involved and falling deeper in that hole he's digging himself, and what happened to Lucia, I don't think anybody had a good time. And speaking of Lucia, wow. Ultimately, no, she wasn't cut out to be a spy as she was letting her emotions overtake her mission. But who can blame this young woman for wanting revenge against a man who had taken so much from her personally? Larrick was, after all, the man who trained the men that tortured and killed her father. And Elizabeth allowing Larrick to kill her was quite the statement on just how much Elizabeth has compartmentalized things, even though the toll of that is beginning to catch up to her. And she most certainly felt Lucia's death very deeply, even as she tried to hold it in. 
in. As an aside, the sequence where Lucia sh- shoots Larrick with a Trank gun, only for him to fight back and shoot her too, was actually a great one, with the winner simply being the one who woke up first, which happened to be Larrick. If Lucia had been smarter, she would have shot Larrick a second time when she realized she had been shot, so hopefully to have him wake up second. Now what happened to Lucia, coupled with the news about a Russian sub sinking due to what was presumably purposely bad plans the Jennings had stolen from the Americans, was enough to send Philip and Elizabeth on the warpath. Philip will always seek the less violent solution, so it meant something when he was calling for Larrick's death. Of course, Elizabeth knew that could not happen, not at least until they had gotten into the training camp. Philip is somewhat enamored with the American lifestyle he's supposed to be fighting against, hence him buying that Camaro. But his look of disgust at that same car after Kate told him what happened to the sub said it all, as far as putting him back in the mindset of helping Mother Russia above all else. The subversion that the series The Americans is all about was beautifully conveyed here, as Elizabeth declared of Ronald Reagan, Look at him, he'll do anything, he doesn't care while they were themselves planning their next move against the United States. This was a notable episode as far as bringing back elements from previous episodes and showing they will continue to factor in. As it turned out, Anton, the kidnapped scientist, was not a one-off story, and as we saw him back in Russia, and working with Vasily, no less, the former residentura who got shipped back to Russia. The Americans continue to do some excellent world building as we expand the characters around the Jennings. The mind games between Stan, Nina, and Oleg are pretty complex and really fascinating. Arcadia and Oleg truly seem to feel they're on the path to truly turning Stan, and which may sound crazy, and yet Stan is already com- compromised and complicit thanks to Nina. So who knows, pushing him all the way over may not be impossible. Certainly that outburst in his garage shows that he has a very short fuse these days while Nina continues to push all the right buttons. Philip may have gotten Elizabeth not to kill Lewis, the truck driver, after they got the info they needed from him, but they've both already killed innocent people to complete missions, and in fact, Philip did it last week, and probably will kill again. The Americans continues to thrill and engage by showing just how high the price is for these people, regardless of their country, to go all in on the spy game, and how difficult it is to ever feel you're a winner in this scenario. I don't know how they do it, but each week seems to get even better than the last great episode. So join us next week for the episode Marshall Eagle. Alright, next we're going to move on to my review of the Season 2 premiere of the amazing BBC America clone series, Orphan Black, with the premiere episode entitled Nature Under Constraint and Vexed. With Sarah out of options, she's on the run. The mean track by Dudley Evans. She suspects that broke clone Rachel is behind the disappearance of Kira and ignites an all-out war against her. Callison sinks into guilt and depression after attending Gensley's funeral. Cosmos is confronted with a decision that could have calamitous results. First and foremost, yes, I will be doing weekly Orphan Black reviews this season. We were late to the party last season as we started watching all 10 episodes we had saved up on our DVR after the season 1 finale ended. All of which is to say, I am I'm very much on 
board for season two and hope to spread the word to those who haven't watched this show yet on what they're missing out on. Season two hit the ground running quite literally with Sarah desperately trying to find out where Kira was. The opening sequence was a very cool tense one with a touch of old school noir to it as Sarah sought refuge in that diner only to be interrupted by two very creepy unusual men. The interplay between Sarah, these guys, and the diner owner was expertly done culminating in that very cool mini shootout and Sarah's exciting escape. One thing that makes Orphan Black so great is how it can whip back and forth tonally yet make it all work. Such was the case here as the show's sense of humor also was on wonderful display. Even in the midst of Sarah's crisis we had her chastising Felix with we have an emergency and you're high? By the way how hilarious were Felix's assless chaps? Oh gotta love that. But of course, the best humor came from the Allison scenes, especially my favorite line about Sarah not having a plan until she did finally come up with one and said, but Allison is not going to like it. I feel like even if Tatiana Maslany wasn't amazing us all with with all the oh-so-different roles she plays, she'd be getting accolades just for playing Allison. This portrayal of such a tightly wound woman who so desperately wants to feel in control of the situation all the time is simply fantastic, and I find myself very happy whenever the show returns to the Allison story. And what an episode this was for her. She's joining a musical, she's buying a gun from her drug dealer while asking how his mother is, and then there was the absolutely hysterical scene that I alluded to earlier where Rachel's lackey Daniel grabbed her on the street and she fought back, maced him, and then blew her rape whistle. About the only aspect of this series that doesn't work for me is the police story arc, which felt less incorporated or tied to the season 1 arcs that we saw continued in this season 2 premiere. With Sarah's days posing as Beth long gone, it's going to take some work to get that aspect to once more feel fully ingrained, as Angie and Art's brief time in this episode sort of proved. Hopefully that will change moving forward now that Sarah is seeking help from Art. I also really enjoy the fact that Rachel is now playing a major role this season, which is a very cool inclusion, especially as we see her interplay with Dr. Leakey, and I can sense a bit of a power struggle between those two, as she casually took over his office in this episode. The fact that Cosima and Delphine are also continuing to work for Leakey, which means they also sort of work for Rachel, essentially, also adds to the intrigue, as everyone has their own agenda in this scenario. Once again in this episode, Tatiana Maslany got to again show just how skilled she is when she played Sarah, posing as Cosima. It's always stunning watching her playing a clone posing as another clone because you can really see just how layered her performance is. She wasn't just acting like Cosima, she was embodying Sarah doing her best to act like Cosima, which was good but not perfect. It may almost be cliche to rave about this actress, but damn it, she keeps giving me reasons to do just that. The fact that Rachel turned out to not be the one who has Kira was a good wrinkle in the episode, even as she got a crowd-pleasing punch from Sarah on the heels of her, well now you're just asking for it line when she said, no one lays hands on me. Paul also remains an appropriately conflicted presence in this scene, as I'm not sure what exactly his role is now or what side he seems to be on this season. As for the end, I'm a bit conflicted about it. Helena was an awesome character to be sure in the first season, but it feels like a cheat having her survive. It diminishes the power of Sarah choosing to kill her, and my first instinct is the writers second-guess themselves, not wanting to remove Helena's unique energy from the mix. I certainly am curious what role she'll play going forward forward and it could lead to excellent storylines down the line for sure but still i can't help but wish they'd let this one go this premiere was a very strong episode 
that displayed the show's wonderful blend of just-around-the-corner sci-fi, mystery, and humor, giving most of the characters at least one big moment to shine and reinforce what an intriguing universe this really is. I watched this show with about 2,500 of my closest friends at WonderCon this weekend, and the crowd loved it just as much as I did. So join us for the next nine weeks as I review this amazing series. I'll be back for next week's episode entitled Governed by Sound Reason and True Religion. Finally, we're going to move on to my review of the premiere of the new FX series Fargo with a pilot episode entitled The Crocodile's Dilemma. Okay, Manipulative Drifter praised proud in small town, insurance salesman, and the opener of the adaptation of this 1996 Coen Brothers. The 1996 Coen Brothers Fargo film is a brilliant film. If you've seen it, chances are you haven't forgotten it and smile just at the mention of it. William H. Macy became a star from his portrayal of a Minnesota car dealer with the classic upper Midwest accents and mannerisms. The Coen Brothers' darkly comedic tale of murder in the midst of Minnesota's frozen landscapes and interpersonal niceties earned the pair a Best Original Screenplay Oscar and and landed lead Frances McDormand the Best Actress Prize. The expectation that the FX series is that it will either be a sequel to or expansion of that great film, and certainly the previews have done nothing to discourage that notion. But no, this new series tells a story all its own. Noah Hawley, creator of the FX limited event series of the same name, has taken the essence of that tale and transformed it into a fresh and entirely engaging experience that will last 10 episodes. The first episode, The Crocodile's Dilemma, introduces the audience to a world that is at once familiar and distinct. The tone of the episode and nature of the characters echo the original film, but there is a slightly different, in some ways, warmer feel in this episode. Again, to be clear, this is not a reboot or retelling of Fargo. The series features an entirely new cast of characters inhabiting a unique story that delves into the violent undercurrents that boil just beneath our polite exteriors. Full of all the wicked appeal, grounded sentiment, inter intermittently delicious and horrifying violence and humor you'd expect from a project that's bold enough to call itself Fargo, this TV adaptation grabs our attention from the first scene and does not let go. When Lester Nygaard smashes his wife's head in with a hammer toward the end of Fargo's brilliant first episode, and a trickle of her dark crimson blood pours down across her face while her unconscious body almost refuses to bend to gravity's will and fall, I, I laughed. A lot, actually. Such a confusing reaction to Noah Hawley's fresh interpretation of the Coen Brothers' 1996 film Fargo is only natural, and it really shouldn't be any other way. FX's Fargo is a dark comedy in the extreme sense of both words. It has the rare ability to craft a scene where a man is pushed to such an extreme level of annoyance that he brutally murders his wife, but even as we recoil from this act, we, we can't help but giggle at the same time. And that kind of twisted humor is exactly what I expect from this show. So far, I've loved Fargo. Based on the strength of the first episode, the series already has the chance to become one of TV's next great shows, even if it struggles to connect with the mainstream audiences because it's endearingly a little bit off. In this pilot episode, each violent act was merely a way of bringing the walls in on Lester so we could watch him squirm. Lester isn't an anti-hero. He's sort of an anti-zero, a literal loser who's been pushed around his 
his whole life and who, on the advice from a man he probably shouldn't be taking advice from, finally decides to stand up for himself when he should probably never do anything but sit down and take it. He's like Mr. Bean if Mr. Bean snapped and started committing homicides. And unlike with most other characters on television, Walter White sort of being a recent exception, there's no clear-cut indication of whether we're supposed to root for him or not. Should we be happy that he's finally manning up and trying to escape the terrible rut he's in? Or should we be appalled that, you know, he just treated his wife like a nail in a plank of wood and smashed her head in? However you feel about him, that scene that began when Chief Vern showed up at Lester's house and ended when Lester ran into the wall to paint himself as another victim was outstanding. So much well-crafted tension in that single scene. Oh, so good. Also, interestingly, if the show continues to a season two, it will be with a completely different plot, characters, and cast. That's the way True Detective launched itself this year, and we all know how successful that turned out to be. By designing TV shows this way, longer and deeper than a feature film but not running for years, networks can get A-list movie talent to commit, and writers can craft stories with an end in sight from the very start. FX's Fargo benefits from that greatly. The cast is amazing, starring Billy Bob Thornton in his first regular TV role in over 20 years, and Martin Freeman, who also stars in the Hobbit film series and as Watson on TV Sherlock. It's easy to see, though, why Billy Bob Thornton came back to TV for this Fargo series. His character is a little like the hitman from No Country for Old Men. He's unpredictable, quirky, and definitely dangerous. But he also enjoys his work a lot. He's sort of like a little kid who kicks an anthill just to see how they will react. And all the people around him, as he sees it, are the ants. This is a great role for Thornton, and he seems to be having a blast exploring the character. Fargo, like the movie, is full of wonderful acting, clever dialogue, and delightful visuals. Indeed, the roster of co-stars in this series is absurdly deep and includes Joey King, Colin Hanks, Alison Tolman, Bob Odenkirk, and Tom Musgraves, just to name a few. This is how For Fargo is going to work. There are two forces at play, one of violent change, as represented by Lorne, the hitman, and one of static decency, as represented by the residents of Bemidji. Caught between these two steamrollers is Lester, a man who's been knocked just far enough off his normal orbit by Lorne that it's causing ripples of upheaval as far as 50 miles away. Fargo is not about murder, but rather transition. Fargo is about change. But where characters like Walter White pushed forward and welcomed his transformation, Lester Nygaard has already realized that he should have made peace with his life as a boring insurance salesman. I give Fargo two giant thumbs up, a 10 out of 10, and 5 stars. The Crocodile's Dilemma was one of the best pilots I've seen in a long time, on par with last year's The American's Pilot, and this series is on par with both the other shows I praised this week in the Airways Rundown, The Americans and Orphan Black. This is a must-watch new series. Alright, that's our reviews this week. Now let's move into the voicemail section. A call has been forwarded. For 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. No voicemails this week, unfortunately, but we do look forward to hearing from many of you and some of our other listeners, and maybe even Wu will start up another series and leave us some great voicemails. Just a reminder, if you would like to leave us one of those voicemails, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback or a review of one of the many new shows we haven't reviewed. 
We hope to hear from some of you soon. We'd love to hear back on Game of Thrones or Fargo or any of the new things out there we talk about. It'd be good stuff. Yep. All right. So with that, we're going to move into the end of this episode. Our closing. Kanika, would you like to tell everyone what's coming down the pipe? Yeah. Next week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with an in-depth discussion of Game of Thrones, Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Warehouse 13, Supernatural, and Glee, and our sitcom section including Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, Fargo, Orphan Black, and Grimm, and maybe even a few more things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, just so you know, our Across the Airways homepage has been updated to a portal page. So basically what that means is when you visit our website, we have basically all of our podcasts listed, and you just need to click on the picture or select the blog, select the various shows that we have. Okay, when you click on those shows, it will take you to a blog page listing all of our episodes, depending on what episode you choose. So it's a little bit of an update there, but we hope it makes things more organized for you guys at our website. And also you can check us out. Got a new home now on the Mix radio station, which is an online radio station available, and I need to add the links to the Mix to our website, but basically um, in addition to our iTunes feed, our Lipson feed, got our regular RSS feed, you can listen to us on the mix. Yeah, and basically um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at 6 p.m. in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stipe, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. And I'll let Andy and Michael share with you um, that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this before and the links to the mix are going to be coming on the site soon. So keep an eye out for those. Also, I recently set it up that there is a layer now on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and link, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC and regular MP3 formats. Um, I just figured that would make things easier for you guys who are confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites um, that you can check out and hopefully we'll raise up our listener numbers. Until our next episode, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And they basically choose a topic that's going on in the entertainment industry to basically talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half. So you can check that out for a mixed bag of topics about the entertainment industry. Also, we've got Across the Airwaves TC Nation podcast, which is briefly out of hiatus right now to kind of be rebooted as more of a DC news source. So we're going to be more so reporting on news coming out of the world of DC entertainment rather than reviewing things. So we're hard at work on that. And also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy and myself for the current time being. And basically, that covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Get more detail. And we'll be covering the next new episode of the show when it returns from hiatus. So if you like Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and watching that show, check out the Helicarrier podcast for in-depth reviews on every episode. And if you're a fan of the hit CW TV series Arrow, you can check out ATA Longwell Hunters, the Arrow podcast, Hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And that basically is a podcast that covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. And they will be covering episodes of Arrow once the show returns from hiatus, which I think is this week. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook. 
where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, as well as the rest of our podcast members. And also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter or join our circle on Google+. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover or suggestions on odd shows you'd like us to cover. Okay, what number can you call to do that? 773-809-3363. Yes. So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. Uh, we love Woo's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio, which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app, and we're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box. Got Android apps, which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, can listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Can also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will let you listen to our podcast episodes. Can that is available on the Amazon Marcus. So with that, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmitz. And I'm Nico Reistek. Can until our next episode, we will catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. And if you're invited to a wedding, be sure to take cover. Or think twice about accepting that invitation, because it could be death. See ya. <laughs> Now return to our regularly scheduled program.